but stay, stay standing. Would you please stay standing for the reading of the word today? We're going to reverence God's word. We believe today that it's living and active, and so we approach it reverently, I trust, but we approach it expectantly. Amen? Believing that God desires to speak. And so Romans chapter 1, if you have your Bible, Romans 1 verse 18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. May God bless the reading of his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you today. We thank you today for who you are. Lord, and even as we sang this morning, you're altogether holy, you're altogether righteous, you're, you're a good God. Lord, all the glory belongs to you. You deserve it. We don't. And so we pray today that as we look to your word, that we would understand more of who you are. Lord, as we talk about the gospel, that it's good news, may we understand, first of all, the bad news. Lord God, but we thank you today, Lord God, that you have come and you've given us a hope and you've given us a future. And that's why we sing today. Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would work through this sweep through this place today. Lord God, through the words that I share, through, Lord, the power of your word, Lord God, that you would change us. We don't want to leave here the same way we come in, came in. And so we pray you would do something in this moment that would change us, that would shape us, that would mark us for eternity. We give you the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Can we just thank this worship team and choir this morning? Praise God. When I'm sitting out there, I love hearing the choir sing, but then when I stand up here, I hear all of you sing. And man, you guys are singing like you believe it this morning. Uh, what a blessing. Praise God. We're continuing in our study in the book of Romans, uh, this great letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. I encourage you again, if you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 1. If you have a note sheet, you came in through the door, encourage you uh, to pull that out. If you don't have a pen, you know the deal. Look for the woman in the row with the biggest pocketbook. She's got like 10 in there. Borrow one, just make sure you give it back. You're in church, all right? Um, we're talking about the, the letter of Paul to the church in Rome, and I, I said week one that this letter is different from all of the other letters that he wrote um, because he, he so often wrote letters to churches that he had visited before, and so he addressed specific issues. But when it comes to the church in Rome, this was a church that Paul had yet to visit. This is a, a church he desired to visit for some time, but he was able, unable to do so, and so it's on his third missionary journey that he writes this letter uh, to the church in Rome. And instead of addressing specific issues, he addresses the issue, the, the greatest need of mankind, the need of salvation. This is why Romans is known as the manifesto of the Christian life, because it gives us really the clearest understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, last week, Pastor Sal preached out of verse 16, which is really Paul's thesis statement, and now he's going to expound upon that. And uh, verse 16 is a good verse to memorize, okay? If you're looking for a verse to memorize, this would be a good one for this week. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm not ashamed 
of the gospel. The Greek word there is the word euangelion, euangelion. If you're following along in the note sheet, it means this. It means good news or good message. Good news or good message. It's where we get the word evangelism from. You understand evangelism is just telling people good news. This Friday, a group is going out. They're heading out to the mall. And and I know when we talk about this idea of evangelism or sharing our faith, it can be frightening. It can be scary, right? But it's really just telling people good news. Now, in order to tell the good news, we have to share some bad news first. And we're going to get into that in just a moment. But we have good news, church. And we ought not to keep silent about it encourage you to come out out on Friday night, put some feet to your faith. Again, euangelion very simply means good news or good message. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the good message of God because it is ultimately what saves both Jew and Greek, euangelion. But here's the thing. Again, in order to understand or appreciate good news, first you have to know the bad news. Imagine you weren't feeling so well, and so you decided to go to the doctor. For me, it takes a while before I make that decision, but, right? Guys, you're with me. Uh, but you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, I'm going to run some tests. And they do the blood work, they do the EKG, they do the CAT scan, you know, all of those tests your insurance won't pay for later, you know? Are you with me? Right? And they run all the tests, and, and after all that, you're sitting in the, the doctor's office, and you're hoping the diagnosis is not so bad. Finally, the doctor bursts through the door and he comes in and he says, I've got good news for you. You're, you're not going to die. We can save your life. Now, let me ask you, what would your next question be? What's the bad news, right? What's, what's wrong? Great, Doc, it's great you can save my life, but why would you say I'm going to die, right? Because you, you've got to understand the diagnosis before you can appreciate the cure. You can't be grateful for salvation unless you know what you've been saved from. And so before getting into this idea of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, Paul is going to let us know what our problem is. And he's going to start with the Gentiles. He's going to expound upon their sin and their unrighteousness. And then he's going to say to the Jews, and and you guys, here's your deal. You, You have the law and you think that the law saves you, but the law actually condemns you. And finally, he's going to say broadly, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Again, in order to understand the good news of the gospel, we first need to see the bad news. And so for the next few weeks, I've got to tell you, there's going to be a lot of bad news. I'm just being honest, but I want you to know we're going somewhere. It's leading us somewhere, right? I don't know if you've ever shopped for a diamond before, married men. I'm hoping that you shopped for a diamond at some point. But when you go and shop for an engagement ring, here's the thing. They don't show you rings. They tend to show you stones, right? And they'll pull out that little diamond and they'll tell you the color and, the, and the, the shape and the size, all this stuff. And as you're at a jewelry shop, a good jeweler will take that diamond and they'll place it down on a piece of black velvet. And as soon as that diamond is placed upon the backdrop of black velvet, all of a sudden that diamond will seem to catch every light in the room. And you'll appreciate that diamond much more when it sits on a black backdrop. And I have to say this, I, I believe that you will appreciate the gospel more if you see it against the backdrop of our sin and our unrighteousness and our rebellion and our great need for salvation. And so right here in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul begins to to lay out that black backdrop. We're going to be there for a few weeks, right? But but the first uh, seven words are frightening words, but we're not going to avoid them today. Is that okay? I don't know why I asked. I'm going to go there anyway because I, I believe we need the full counsel of the word of God. We can't skip over the tough verses. One of the reasons I like preaching exegetically through the Bible is I can't skip over the tough stuff. But look at these seven words. The wrath 
of God is being revealed. I want to talk to you today about the doctrine of the wrath of God. How many of you think that wrath is an attribute of God? Nobody wants to raise their hand. You kind of, maybe. How many of you have ever heard a sermon preached on the wrath of God? There were more in the first service. A couple, a couple of hands. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, tremendous book, I recommend it. He, he says this about the subject of God's wrath. He says, the modern habit throughout the Christian church is to play down this subject. Those who still believe in the wrath of God, not all do, say little about it. Perhaps they do not think much about it. To an age which has unashamedly sold itself to the gods of greed, pride, sex, and self-will, the church mumbles on about God's kindness, but says virtually nothing about his judgment. How often during the past year did you hear, or if you are a minister, did you preach a sermon on the wrath of God? How long is it, I wonder, since a Christian spoke straight on this subject on radio or television? The fact is that the subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society, and Christians by and large have accepted the taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the matter. He says, we may well ask whether this is as it should be, for the Bible behaves very differently. One cannot imagine that talk of divine judgment was ever very popular, and yet the biblical writers engage in it constantly. One of the most striking things about the Bible is the vigor with which both testaments emphasize the reality and the terror of God's wrath. Now, I know when we talk about this subject right away, so many people will say, you know, well, that's an Old Testament thing, right? As if the God of the Old Testament, he, he's a God of wrath, but the God of the New Testament, he's a God of love. Newsflash, he's the same God, okay? And the Word of God tells us that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchanging. And so we have to deal with, and I think we have to wrestle with this idea of the wrath of God. And, and I believe, really believe, that unless we fully understand it, we can't understand the gospel. Again, if you don't understand the diagnosis, you can't appreciate the cure. And so the church has said over and over again to people, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, right? We get it right from, uh, from nursery school, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? To a world that's caught up in sin, Jesus loves you. And they're like, well, that's great, Jesus loves me, it's all good, Right? Let's not talk about the wrath of God because, you know what, that might turn people away. But I'm convinced that a lack of response to the good news is due in part to us not declaring the bad news. The church has stopped talking about sin and hell and judgment and wrath. All through the 90s, there was this seeker-sensitive movement. You, you know, the seeker-sensitive movement. And, and, and it didn't really work if you look at the church today because Scripture tells us this, that no one seeks God. There's none righteous, not one. Unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God, we don't seek him. Seeker-sensitive churches, I think, are trying to reach a demographic that doesn't exist. Now, what is the wrath of God? I want to be clear with you today. Let me, first of all, tell you what it's not, okay? It is not God losing his temper, okay? It's not God losing self-control. Sometimes we get that picture, right, of God in the, in the heavens shooting down that lightning bolt. That's, that's not what it is, is, okay? Wrath is defined this way as the emotional response to perceived wrong and injustice, often translated as anger or indignation. The wrath of God is his eternal hatred of all unrighteousness. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. It is the, the cause of the just sentence that he passes on evildoers. 
Now, both mankind and God express wrath, but I want to tell you there's a vast difference between the wrath of God and the wrath of man. God's wrath is connected to his character. Again, we sang it, right? He, he's holy, he's altogether perfect, and therefore he is justified in his wrath. Man is never holy and rarely justified. And so when you think of the wrath of God, don't think of a time when, when your old man lost his temper, okay? That's not a good picture, all right? Because that was not justified. That was likely a lack of self-control. No, the wrath of God is not God losing his temper and flying off the handle and doing something that he will later regret. The wrath of God is a precise, calculated, and justified response to evil by a God who is altogether good. So the wrath of God is his anger. It's his anger. Now, there are a lot of preachers at a lot of pulpits who will stand up and say, well, I want you to know, first of all, that God is not an angry God. But I've got to counter that today and let you know he is, in fact, an angry God. Not only is he angry, he's angry every day. Now, you may say, well, I don't want to hear that. I, I don't want to think, Pastor, about the wrath of God, almost like it's a, a blotch on his divine character. But what does the Scripture say? That's what's important, right? What does the Bible say? You see, as you read the Word of God, you will find God makes no attempt to conceal the fact of his wrath. Anybody been in the Old Testament lately, right? Anybody been in the New Testament lately, right? Nothing to conceal the fact of his wrath. He's not ashamed to make it know that, that vengeance belongs to him. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, says, See, now that I, even I, am he, there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold of, on judgment, I will take judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries, and I will repay those who hate me. If you look through a Bible concordance, you will see there's actually more references in Scripture to the anger and the fury and the wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness. Why? Because God is holy. And because he's holy, he hates all sin. Because he hates all sin, his anger burns against the sinner. Whether you like it or, or, or not, or whether you want to think uh, something different, the Bible says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That's what we just read. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Very simply, God gets angry when mankind does evil. Now, there are some that will say, well, I've got a problem with that because I know God is love, and therefore God shouldn't get angry. Remember, it was December of 2019, my wife and I had the opportunity, uh, it was just before the COVID pandemic, we had the opportunity to visit Bangkok, Thailand with an organization, Love 146, that rescues children out of sex trafficking. And uh, we flew out to Bangkok. I remember we stopped in this little city in China called Wuhan for a layover. Never heard of Wuhan before. <laughs> You've heard of Wuhan by now. And we flew over into Bangkok and we were there with the founder of the organization and we went through the red light district there in, in uh, Bangkok as a, a group and saw all these areas where young women, very young women, were forced against their will to be sexual slaves. Walked across the street into an area and it just broke my heart. We walked into this area where young boys were often sold for the most horrible, horrific things. And after that, we had the opportunity to go to a safe home. And in that safe home, those kids were running to us full of joy. It was a blessing to, to see them rescued from that situation. But in that safe home, there were infants. And I'm like, what in the world is an infant doing here? 
I got to tell you, as I spent time in that place, my heart broke, but I also got angry. <laughs> there are things that, that we see in this world that cause us to get angry, and rightly so, right? It, it is a righteous anger. Understand, anger is not sin. Scripture says, in your anger, do not sin, right? And so there's a response to anger that's right, and there's a response to anger that's wrong. And the reason that human wrath is warned against in the Bible is because uh, oftentimes we do it wrong. <laughs> but God's perfect, and he's holy. Our wrath is sinful. His is not. Now understand today, hate is not sin. Psalm 97.10, oh, you who love the Lord. What does it say? Hate evil. If you love the Lord, you're going to hate evil. Listen, if we love what is right and perfect, then there must be animosity towards everything that contradicts what is right. And yet we say, oh, but God is love, and so he shouldn't get angry. God is love, therefore he can't hate. Let me correct that thinking. God is love, therefore he must hate. God loves all that is righteous, and therefore his hatred is made manifest against the wicked. Let me ask, can you imagine seeing the things that God sees? I mean, we see evil on one level. We see injustice on one level, and God sees it all. We get angry about injustice. We get angry about abuse. Now, again, as fallen creatures, that anger is not always just because we, we don't see the big picture, right? Our response is not always good, but God's is. But, but there are times when that anger rises up. I think for us as New Yorkers, 9-11 was one of those times, right? When we saw what took place that day, there was an anger that rose up. We said, we should be angry about that. Talk about events in history like the Holocaust, such an atrocity, six million Jews killed. Abortion in America, over 60 million lives taken in the womb. If I were to look at those things and, and just kind of take them lightly and say, ah, it's no big deal, you would be like, Pastor, what is wrong with you, Right? We should get angry about that. And so if we as fallen human race can say there are certain injustices that we ought to get angry about, even though at times our anger is mixed with sin, don't tell me that God doesn't have the right to be angry when his anger is not mixed with sin, but it is perfect. Are you going to tell me that we have the right to get angry when we see evil in our world, but God who is righteous and just and holy should not get angry at all when he sees it? God's wrath against sin and disobedience is perfectly justified because his plan for mankind is holy and perfect, just as God himself is holy and perfect. And so the Bible tells us, the word of God tells us right here in verse 18 that there is real opposition in the heart of God against what evil men do. Now there's this temptation to separate man from their sin. And I gotta say, we don't see that in scripture. Maybe you've heard the phrase, I'm gonna mess some of you up this morning, all right? Maybe you've heard the phrase, God hates a sin but loves a sinner. You anybody ever heard that before? God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Now, now maybe you could say that about the believer. God loves you, but he wants to deal with sin in your life. But understand this, outside of Christ, God's wrath falls on sinners. You, you can't separate the sin from the sinner. They're judged because of their sin. Psalm 5, 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. Sounds very different than God hates the sin but loves the sinner. No, according to the word of God, God's hatred is manifest towards the one who commits wickedness. But, but again, his hatred is not like ours. It, it's not self-centered. It's not selfish. It is the reaction of a holy God against those who do what is wicked. Now, here's a temptation that we need to avoid. Let me just tell you this. When we talk about the wrath of God, it's, it's this temptation to think, well, the wrath of God is justified against them, right? Against that group of people or against that individual, right? The, the Jeffrey Dahmers and, and the Hitlers were like, yeah, God, wrath, right? Pour it out, right? 
that guy who cut you off on the Palisades, wrath, right? That's justified, God, bring it down, right? But when we talk about the wrath of God toward us, right away our defenses go up. And you may say this morning, Pastor, I, I understand what you're saying, but, but, but I'm not. You're not what? I'm not that bad. <laughs> and I would say according to what standard? <laughs> oh, you may not be that bad in your own mind. You may have figured out a way this week to justify your sin in your own eyes, right? But here's the problem. God is good. <laughs> we say it all the time. God is good. All the time. God is good. And that's a problem. Because you're not. Scripture says we all fall short of that righteousness. Scripture says that our, our righteous works are as filthy rags. In other words, you on your best day, you still fall short of the righteousness and the holiness of God. And so what is a good God supposed to do with you? What is a perfect God supposed to do with me when I'm far from perfect, right? What, what is he supposed to do? If he is judge of all the earth, if someday you must stand before him and your eternity will be decided by him and by his standard, what is he supposed to do with you? You, think I, you see, I think it's so important that we understand the doctrine of the wrath of God because unless we understand our sinful nature, unless we understand the wrath of God against unrighteousness, we can't understand the mercy of God and we don't appreciate what it means that we've received now the righteousness of Christ. In the church, we use the word saved so often, right? We say, hey, brother, are you saved, right? Now, that's a, a biblical term. In, in fact, the word saved is used in the New Testament in every tense. In the Greek, there's more than just past, present, and future, too, right? But the Bible declares this about those who are in Christ, that we were saved, that we're being saved, and that one day we ultimately will be saved, right? But I've got a question for you. When you say you're saved, what are you saved from? You, you see, there's, there's many meanings for the word saved, but ultimately it means this, an escape from calamity. Listen, there is a calamity that's coming to mankind. And Scripture calls it the great day of wrath. It's when the cup of God's wrath will be poured out upon the unrighteous because God must act justly and judge sin, otherwise God would not be God. So when you say you're saved, what are you saved from? Talk to me this morning. What are you saved from? Damnation, hell, right? People, for my sin, a lot of people, right? Ultimately, it's a three-letter word, G-O-D. <laughs> you're saved from God himself. You're saved from God by God. Because here's the reality. If you, in all of your sin, encounter a holy God, there's only one proper response and it's wrath. And yet God's love is of such character that he can show love to the objects of wrath. Listen, when you think about the mercy of God, you've got to understand that because of his mercy, it's almost like with one hand he's holding back wrath, and with the other he's drawing men and women to himself. But there's coming a day when both hands will drop. Again, it's a day that Scripture, the Word of God, refers to as the great day of wrath. Look at Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. It speaks of a day when the wrath of God will come upon the world in such a way that the leaders of this world will cry out. Verse 15. It says, And the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us 
and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of who? Of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand it? When we talk about the coming judgment, when we talk about the reality, let me say that again, the reality of hell. Understand, it is the perfect justice of God revealed against mankind for eternity. And when we talk about these subjects like, like hell and, and judgment, you know what, if you go back and you read the early church writers, this is what they always talked about. Don't believe me? Just read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You can Google it this week. Jonathan Edwards, all right? It said that when he preached that sermon, the, the congregation felt like their feet were on fire. That was how hell, real hell was in that moment, right? The, the judgment of God was regularly preached from pulpits in America, but churches don't say it anymore. And pastors don't say it anymore. Because they want to draw a crowd. Listen, we're called to preach the gospel, the good news, th that we're to tell others that God, yes, he extends his hand down to us, but he extends his hand to a disobedient and unrighteous people. At the same time, his wrath comes upon all those who would reject him. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Listen, our culture has suppressed the truth for so long now that that verse is almost impossible for some to hear. The attitude of many today is, well, again, I'm a pretty good person, and so God would never do something like that to me, not the God that I serve. Well, is he the God of the Bible? Again, they've only heard of the love of God, but they've never heard of the necessity. I say the necessity of the wrath of God. Look at those words describing those who suppress truth because they're opposite of what God is. Look at this. God is godly, they are ungodly. God is righteous, they are unrighteous. Eh, and, and the truth is, that's a description of every one of us before we, by grace alone, exercise the faith to receive the truth and the righteousness of God. We are saved by faith alone. We don't deserve it. Christ earned it for us. But that word suppress, it means to withhold. Now, look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. In other words, they know it, but they don't like it, and so they don't yield to it. Instead, they suppress the truth, and they distort the truth. God has made things plain, and yet they go in the other direction. You know, one of the arguments that you hear often against hell, against judgment, is really this question is, well, what about people that have never heard? Like, how, how is it even fair that, that God would condemn someone on some remote island without revealing himself to them? But here's the reality. There will be no one in hell who has not had a revelation of God. Look at verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul is talking here, he's talking about general revelation. If we look honestly at our world and we look around at the beauty of it, we may say, man, there is a creator, right? Creation itself reveals God where no believer has proclaimed the gospel. Psalm 19.1 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. And so everyone who everywhere has this general revelation that there is a God. People know there's a God, but they refuse to honor him or give thanks for what they have received from him. That's exactly what verse 20, 21 tells us. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So because they do not honor God, it's through their own choices that they become darkened and their thinking becomes futile. If you discuss the, the creation of, of the world with an unbeliever or someone who, who holds maybe to the theory of evolution, you may find that they express more faith than we do at times, right? 
If you ask them where, where matter came from, they'll just tell you it always was. Well, that takes a leap of faith, right? Right? That takes a leap of faith to believe that. Now, science tells us, though, if that were the case, that matter would have run out of energy long ago, right? And, and we would be living in a stagnant universe right now. When you ask about order, both on, on a large scale and, and microscopic scale, they'll say it was random, right? But the laws that we know contradict that possibility. And, and so what really happens in those conversations is that reason goes out the window, and then they'll declare that you're the ignorant one as the believer, right? And so I keep asking in the world. Here's what I keep asking every day. Who is suppressing truth? You want to find evil? You want to find the source of evil? Who is suppressing truth? Look at verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You read these verses written thousands of years ago and you realize nothing has changed in our world, has it? There are still those who claim to have a corner on truth, and those same people depend on randomness and time to create the beauty and the order that we see all around us. How foolish. Instead of worshiping the creator, they worship idols. Paul says here, those idols resemble mortal men. In other words, they have a human form. Our idols uh, still today have a human form. It's why pornography is such an issue in our world right now. It's worship of idols, worship of the human form. Think about it. We as mankind, we owe our very existence to an all-knowing, all-powerful God, and yet mankind spends a good deal of their time trying to prove that that God doesn't exist. Mankind created in the image of God spends its time trying to prove that God does not exist, and they call that wisdom, right? How foolish are we that we would exchange the glory of God, the fact that we've been created in the very image of God, that we would trade in the moral law, the, the fact that we were created with a purpose to live with God forever, that instead we would like to be just like one of the animals, <laughs> having no moral law and no purpose and no eternal existence. That's why Psalm 14:1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so Paul declares that no one's going to have an excuse when they stand before God. What can be known about God is plain to them. And general re revelation, hear me, is enough to condemn, but it's not enough to save. It's enough to condemn, but it's not enough to save. And that's why we're going to continue with this, this message. We're going to continue in the weeks ahead to talk about salvation. In other words, uh, God is totally just to condemn all mankind because we know that he exists and yet we turn away from him. He's totally just, he's totally righteous when he condemns unrighteousness. Again, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And you can reject that idea today, you can push back on it, but there's a day coming when ungodliness and unrighteousness will be dealt with. And hear me, our only escape from the judgment of unrighteousness is the very righteousness of Christ. How do we obtain that righteousness? It's by faith in Jesus Christ. It's by faith in what he did for us on the cross. When Christ went to the cross, he died and he satisfied the justice of God. His death appeased the wrath of God. You know, there's this question that went around. I remember when the Passion of Christ came out, there was this question going back and forth. Well, who, who crucified Jesus? And some of the Italians were upset because you're painting the Romans in a bad light. And the Jews are upset because you're painting the Jews in a bad light. And so what was the response? Well, the church said, you know what? We, we all put Jesus on the cross. I, I crucified Jesus. Theologically, that's not the right answer. 
You and I are saved today, if we are saved. We are saved today not because the, the, the Jews put Jesus on trial or the Romans beat him and hung him on a cross. No, when Jesus was nailed to that tree, he bore your sin, he bore my sin. And it was God the Father. It was God the Father who measured out the punishment. It was God the Father who crushed his only son. Someone had to suffer the wrath of God. Someone had to be accursed. Isaiah 53, 10, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of this suffering servant, don't miss these words, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Who punished Jesus? God the Father did. Because it was the only way that his justice could be satisfied. Maybe you know the story of Abraham and Isaac, and really that's great story of Abraham's life and his son Isaac, who was the son of the promise. There's a story that's really a foreshadowing of the cross. If you know, Abraham takes his son, his only son. It's the son of the promise. He takes him up to the mountain where God tells him he needs to sacrifice his son. And, and Abraham had enough faith to believe that if God called him to kill the son of the promise, that he would raise him up again. And so Abraham raises the knife to sacrifice his son, but the Lord stays his hand and instead provides what? A ram in the thicket. But when you look at Matthew's gospel and you see Jesus hanging on the cross, you see him hanging on that tree, we see God raising the knife. There is no hand to stay the knife and God the Father slaughters his only son. And we're told that from noon till about 3 p.m. there, there was darkness over the entire land. And then Jesus cries out these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there are those that will say, well, Jesus said these words because while he was on the cross, he bore so much sin that the Father couldn't even look at him. I don't think that's scriptural because God looks at sin all the time. He sees sin all the time. In order to understand what Jesus is saying there, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We need to go back to the psalm that he's quoting, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day but you do not answer and by night but i find no rest yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of israel and you our fathers trusted they trusted and you delivered them to you they cried and were rescued in you they trusted and were not put to shame but i am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people by quoting that psalm jesus is saying that there's never been a time in the covenant history of your people, that a righteous man called out to you and you did not deliver. But here I am, and I'm hanging on a tree, and I'm accursed, and I did no wrong. So why have you forsaken me? Here's why. You see the contrast right there between verse 3 and verse 6. You are holy. I'm a worm. Hear me today. God is perfectly holy, and we are so far from it. And the only way to close that gap, the only way to close that chasm between you and God himself was for someone to die outside of the favorable presence of God. Someone had to be accursed. Some man had to be accursed. It's the picture of the scapegoat, right? When the priest would lay his hands upon the goats and transfer the sins of the people on that goat and one goat would be slaughtered and the other would be driven outside of the walls of the city to, to wander and suffer and eventually die. And so Christ comes and he becomes the scapegoat. And he suffers outside of the gates of the city. He's cut off from God. He became a curse. 
Scripture says, cursed is everyone who hangs on that tree. But Galatians lets us know this, Christ redeemed us from the curse, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What does that mean, right? What does that mean to be under the curse? What does that mean to be accursed? It's this picture of mankind being so heinous in our sin that if God were to wipe us off the face of the earth, all creation would rejoice that God rid the world of us. But Christ, the God-man, became a curse. He carried all of our filth and all of our guilt and all of our shame. And yes, that cut him off from a holy God. It wasn't just separation, though, that he experienced. It was wrath. Matthew 26, verse 39, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know this, right? Right before his arrest that would lead to his trial, that would lead to his crucifixion, and he cries out these words, my my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Let this cup pass from me. Here's the question. What is the cup? What is the cup? I'm going to tell you what it's not. It's not the cross. It's not the nails that would go through his hands. It's not the beating that he would endure that would rip the flesh from his body so that he would be unrecognizable. What is the cup? What is it that caused him such agony that as he's praying there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's literally sweating drops of blood. It, was that he was, it wasn't that he was going to face the cross, as terrible as that was. Remember, there are countless disciples who would later be crucified, and some of them would go to their death singing worship songs. Peter himself would be crucified upside down because he didn't think he was worthy of being crucified in the same manner as his Savior. Listen, if you only see the cup as the cross, then you're telling me that Jesus wasn't as brave as his disciples. What is the cup? It's the cup of the wrath of God. And that wrath was poured out upon Jesus on the cross. It was poured out upon Jesus at the cross. Don't tell me the wrath of God is an Old Testament thing. We see the wrath of God at the very center of history. It's on the cross where the wrath of God and the great love of God meet. It pleased God to crush his only son because in that moment, the wrath of God was satisfied completely for those who believe. And we're gonna come to the communion table in just a few moments today. You're going to hold a cup in your hand and as we prepare for communion. Of course, any time we, we take the blood and, and, and the bread, the cup and the bread, we think of the blood that was shed for us. Of course, we think of the physical body that was broken, but I want you to understand that the only reason that you and I can drink the cup of the new covenant is because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us. Paul's going to say it this way. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Remember our text that we started with today. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And the only way to escape the wrath of God is to be righteous. And the only way to be righteous is to allow Jesus to make us righteous. And that comes by faith in what he did for us upon the cross. Would you stand with me today? as we prepare to receive the bread and the cup. How can we come before a holy God today? 
How can we approach his throne of grace? It's not by our own righteousness. It's by Christ's righteousness. And so in just a moment, we're going to remember what Christ has done for us. So we're going to glory in the work of the cross. We come before a holy God unashamed, right? Because we wear a righteousness that is not our own. It's an alien righteousness given to us by Christ, and we now wear that righteousness. With heads bowed around this room, I just got to ask this. You're here this morning, you heard a lot of bad news. But don't miss the good news. Don't miss the good news. There is a righteousness that's available to you today. And it's not about you working it up and somehow being a better person. It's about surrendering. It's about placing your faith in what Jesus did for you on the cross. Salvation is as simple as this. It's as simple as admitting that you're a sinner, that you need a Savior. It's as simple as believing that Jesus went to the cross to pay for your sin and that that sin has been dealt with and then confessing him as your Lord and Savior. Even today, right now, you can take a moment to just pray that prayer. And it's not the words you say as much as the posture of your heart. Is there anyone today that would say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I want to receive Christ today for the first time. I want to, re- I want to respond to that message. I want to receive him. Any hands today around this room that would say, praise God, I'm going to give a moment. It's a lot of bad news. But Jesus is good news. The gospel is good news. The offers available today. We can come before a holy God, again, not wearing our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. Today, I want to encourage you. It would just be by a simple prayer. Just say, God, I surrender. I surrender to you. Hallelujah. I trust you've made that decision already. Trust maybe that God's working and tugging on your heart. It'll be up here after service. I would love to talk with you and pray with you. Again, Unless we understand the bad news, we can't understand the good news, but there is good news, amen? And that's what we're going to celebrate today with the bread and the cup. As you hold the cup today, you're going to think about his body that was broken. You're going to remember his blood that was spilled. But more than anything, I want you to think about the fact that Jesus was willing to drink the cup of God's wrath so that you could drink this cup today, the cup of the new covenant. And so let's worship him. Let's just prepare our hearts to receive communion in just a moment. Just begin to lift your voice. Come on, just begin to thank him for what he's done for you.